Bureau of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is sponsored by Advanced Compliance Solutions, where I have a very interesting new service offering, providing marketing support, podcast sponsorship, and ongoing training to your sales team. If you are a product manufacturer in the compliance space and would like more information, please give me a shout. Today I have back with me Ben Lockwin for the conclusion of our three-part series on the risk management process. We previously looked at forecasting and risk assessment, and today we take a look at risk-based monitoring, all of which leads to better risk-based decision-making. The episode comes in at just around 25 minutes. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you very much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm back again with my friend and colleague, Ben Lockwin, and we are going to continue our exploration of the risk management process. We've previously taken a look at forecasting, risk assessments, risk-based monitoring, and today we're going to move into uh, really risk-based thinking um, interpreting the data, uh, avoiding getting overwhelmed, and sort of tie it all together for you. As I mentioned, I'm joined by Ben Lockwin, the Director of Global R&D at Biogen and an operational strategist in pharmaceutical and healthcare industry. So, Ben, welcome. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here again, and uh, I think it gets better every time we meet. So, uh, we've been talking about the risk management process, and we laid out as indicated, forecasting, risk assessment, and risk-based monitoring. But in my world of anti-corruption compliance, Ben, one of the uh, really um, things that I hear over and over from compliance officers is that they don't know how to interpret the data. Um, what does the raw information mean to them? I've heard you call it the signal-to-noise ratio. Uh, I'm old enough that when I was in college, we talked about it as white noise. So uh, how can the compliance professional and really any industry or discipline really utilize better risk-based thinking? Mm. Better risk-based thinking really has underpinning at its heart the fact that um, we are surrounded by a universe of probabilities. And while that tends to make everyone, myself included, uh, a little bit squeamish, you know, we, we really like as humans to have things be as definitive as possible. We like black and white, not a lot of gray areas. The, the world, the universe, corporations, they very much are gray areas. So better risk-based thinking starts with um, an explicit understanding we essentially have to conduct a mindfulness exercise with ourselves within the organization, realize that external market forces are things that we cannot control, but instead are things that we need to adapt to. And even within our organizations, there are so many uh, different diverse viewpoints, people operating conditions that we really can never predict with 100% confidence um, what's going to happen. So we have to start getting comfortable with variation. And this variation uh, can be captured in, as you call it, the signal-to-noise ratio. And really what it is, is uh, talking about the noise of your organization's measurements. So the noise refers to variations in everything from individuals' outputs, the ability to measure uh, at an organizational level, at a department level, at a, let's say, a document level, what's actually going on. 
and you know measurements themselves are not infallible. So we're introducing noise when we measure things. Individuals doing work in certain ways introduce, introduces another level of noise. Um, and all these levels of noise compound on themselves. And what they can do is overwhelm much of the true signal that's really going on and going wrong. Now, the, the true signal, those are the things that you're really trying to measure. You want to know if you've put in a, a let's say, a, a correction campaign into your organization for compliance. Did it have the intended effect that you wanted it to? And you really only know that if you're able to properly measure. But just because you have a time series plot and you show that something got a little bit better, I would caution that that can't be taken as the end result. You know, don't just measure for a month or for three months and say, these data that we have, these are telling us the end all be all, we've solved it, done deal. Because again, in a lot of cases, you've got individuals who are operating differently, you've got measurement system variation. There are even methods to try to quantify and reduce this, which is something we won't talk about today, but it's called measurement systems analysis. You know, how good are your systems at being able to uh, measure actual departures from what your, what your norm is versus um, it, they're just capturing the noise itself. And, you know, you really want to find yourself in a position where you're able to detect true blips. So these are the real signals. Are things getting better or is it that the noise is overwhelming the system and maybe things actually got slightly worse, but you're you know, you've really convinced yourselves that because we've we've applied a certain amount of cost and time that the trend kind of seems like it's upward, when in reality it isn't upward at all. So risk-based thinking, uh, again, can be distilled down into its roots as uh, getting comfortable with variation, getting uh, comfortable with noise as it exists, but trying to reduce the noise. It's something that will always be there, but being confident in your ability to take a deep breath to step back and try to eliminate sources of noise and look for real true causes of failure. So let me see if I could uh, uh, really tie that to, to something you've written about in an article called Better Risk-Based Thinking Will Help Produce Better Risk-Based Monitoring. And if I can set the stage with an example from, from my world of compliance, um, in the, uh, the metrics that come up from whistleblower or hotline, systems, uh, simply because you get a, an allegation, <clears throat> it only tells you, um, or it only tells you about the complaints that you have. It may not give you the information uh, more than the developed by the individual. It only allows you to have some um, diligence on the actual uh, problems that are going on in the business unit if I could maybe take that to an example you talked about, which is the Beware system in use in Fresno, California, and how that system provided some information, but it may not have provided enough information to make an accurate judgment uh, by the police. And really, uh, so how does a practitioner, a compliance practitioner from any discipline understand beyond simply the signal to noise ratio and the white noise that we just talked about, but getting the information which allows them to make an accurate decision based upon the facts on the ground, not as reported up through the system? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, the Beware system for listeners, so again, it's in use uh, in Fresno, California, uh, as an exemplar, but certainly other police departments are using it as well. It's an electronic database, and it takes into account GPS coordinates, 
spatial distributions of localized criminal activity. Um, if there's an address where there's uh, a repeat offender, there's um, recidivism risk, that gets factored into this beware model. And it essentially it searches and sorts through all of these records and announces to responding police officers what their likely risk level is when, or, or the, the threat rating when they're um, facing somebody, so let's say for a traffic stop, for um, reporting to a home for a domestic dispute. And um, it's interesting because not every address or location should be expected to have an equivalent level of risk. And I think we can all agree on that. Um, however, the people who are against the beware system, they think that it unfairly paints a picture of a situation before the responding officer can appraise the, the situation. So if we tie this back to you know, the, the rule of law and, and considering that everybody should be presumed not guilty unless demonstrated otherwise, um, you know, you've got a situation where individual citizens uh, should be considered not guilty. The responding officer shows up and needs to assess the situation. Now, if they're, let's say, improperly steered during their response by the beware system, it could be that they're reacting with an inappropriate level of force to the actual threat level. And they may be taking, again, you know, if we, if we talk to um, the, the podcast that we, we did on forecasting, it, it could be that they're improperly assigning too much weight to a forecast from the beware system, which was erroneous at the outset. And so they're, they're using uh, a level of force which isn't indicated for the current situation. So with that, um, I guess the question I would have or the follow-up would be, I think my dogs really uh, appreciated what you just said, that having <laughs> having the raw data or having the information uh, without a really a human analysis on it uh, can lead to discriminatory outcomes, and that it really still takes the uh, skill of a compliance professional utilizing the data to come up with perhaps even a range of of um, outcomes that might be acceptable, if not the correct outcome. Would that be a fair? Uh, way to put it together? Yeah, more than fair. I think eminently accurate. You know, one of the things that um, always concerns me with, with, let's say, threat levels or risk assessments is that if we don't apply um, our good judgment to some of the outcomes, then we fall into the trap of, of some of these uh, forecasting logical errors. And, um, you know, if I think back to some some forecasts that showed us that we shouldn't have maybe changed behavior in the three months after September 11th, 2001, the NHTSA's data showed that um, people tried to avoid airliners because 9-11 had just occurred. And in the three months following, there were 725 uh, more fatalities on the highways in the United States than would have been expected by their seasonally adjusted models because people opted to not fly in airliners. And, you know, after 9-11, uh, you know, who could fault people for trying to avoid airline travel? But at the same time, you know, we find ourselves in a situation where uh, we think we're taking the best behavioral tack when really the data are telling us something else. 
and we would have had 725 fewer deaths if people hadn't changed their flying habits after 9-11. And another great example, too, is that in California, people tend to buy earthquake insurance more often after they've experienced an earthquake rather than before. Um, so I'll say that again. People tend to buy earthquake insurance after they've personally experienced an earthquake and earthquake loss rather than prior to the event, which is really the whole point of insurance. It's like, you know, when did Noah build the ark? Before the rain. So you, you want to make sure you've got the insurance before. But, you know, people don't often uh, take things seriously unless they've personally encountered them. And um, the result is a quote that you had mentioned, which is confident eye-catching forecasts of the snack food of analysts, uh, which is something that you had written in one of your last blogs, which I liked a lot. Um, I spent a lot of time researching and teaching clinics about the placebo effect, and there was a new research report from the George Institute for Global Health, and it looked at the findings of 35 clinical trials of 6,000 patients using anti-inflammatory pain relievers. And what they said was, quote, compared with placebo, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs do not provide a clinically important effect on spinal pain. So the researchers found that six patients had to be treated with anti-inflammatory drugs for one person to achieve a clinically important benefit in the short term. So we call this in healthcare the NNT, which is just an acronym for the number needed to treat. So every prescription has a measure of how many patients need to take a drug, a treatment, a medical device for one person to experience a benefit. And obviously, as this number approaches one, the more effective it is, meaning one person takes it, one person benefits. But there are some drugs that have NNTs of 50 or 100 or more, meaning that hundreds of people are taking these without any real benefit for one person to improve. And so in my mind, this is the ultimate measurement of upside risk versus downside risk versus faith. And you know, making sure that we're not blindly following our forecasting models, but at the same time, we can't just use hope and opinion because without good data, uh, we're, no, we're no better than anyone else's guess. So Ben, um, we're living on the Texas Gulf Coast, I certainly appreciate your uh, analogy on insurance. That's when uh, hurricane insurance tends to be purchased in the uh, fall, which is at the end of the hurricane season rather than the start. <laughs> but um, maybe we could uh, sort of tie some of this together. And, and let me just throw out a couple of points that I've really learned in, in working with you and, and developing this series. And it's that risk management is a process. We've talked about forecasting, we've talked about risk assessment, we've talked about uh, risk-based monitoring, and now we're talking about the execution of that information. But the process continues, and what you just said, that uh, it's an ongoing process and, it's, and a continuing process, if you put the work into it, it gives you a wider range of not only uh, abilities to respond to things that you may detect, but also move to uh, predict things that might uh cause your company harm, damage, or even reputational risk to really stopping that before it even rises to that level. And the, the process allows for greater information based upon greater input. And But it's all execution. And every point in all of these series of podcasts, you've talked about execution is the key to each step. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think... 
Clearly nothing in the world ever goes beyond an idea until execution takes hold. So if you actually want to make appreciable changes in any aspect of life or in any organization uh, to improve corporate performance, to improve operational and corporate compliance, it has to come uh, at the tail end of execution. So this is really kind of taking the models and not just nodding one's head and saying, yep, that's a good idea, we basically do that. Moving it beyond, uh, we basically do that. And what exactly is your actual practice? And are you practicing what you preach? Are you putting this into play so that you can demonstrate real results? And um, you know, if, if you put into place conclusive actions, um, these sorts of things, give you demonstrable ways to say, uh, we implemented the following practices and programs. We're now measuring a month later, three months later, six months later, and have we screened out enough noise and can we demonstrate to ourselves, to our stakeholders, to our shareholders, that what we're doing is better than it was before? Because if we're not striving to be better than we were several months in the past, uh, Again, with the rest of the world moving at uh, faster and faster velocity around us, we're essentially losing ground. So, Ben, unfortunately, we're at the end of our time, but uh, I wanted to ask if uh, anyone wanted to contact you about uh, any of the things that we talked about, either on these series of podcasts or the blog series I wrote, uh, could they email you? And if, if so, how would they do that? Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to um, respond to any email inquiries. Um, my email address is uh, ben.lockwin, B-E-N dot L-O-C-W-I-N, at healthcarescienceadvisors.com. And that's advisors, A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S with no spaces. Ben.lockwin at healthcarescienceadvisors.com. Well, Ben, this has just been a ton of fun for me, and I look forward to uh, seeing what we can come up with next for both our audiences. All right. I appreciate it, Tom. Thank you very much for your time, and it's always a pleasure. And thank you to the listeners. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you listen to all three episodes and you'd like a white paper, uh, which gives more detail about the issues and the risk management process that I visited with, with, with Ben Lachlan, if you will email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com, happy to provide that white paper to you. Also, if you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us as it would help on our rankings and get the word out to the broader business community about compliance and why compliance as a business process is so important. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you'll join me for the next FCPA Compliance Report. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.